Our sermon this morning is on the rich man and Lazarus from Luke chapter 16, uh, verses 19 to 31. And I don't know where my Bible is. Here it is back here. So we'll just press pause for a second. Thank you, sir. Okay. So Luke chapter 16, if you happen to be using one of our pew Bibles, you can find it on page 823. If you're not, then just use it on the, the Bible that you have. Uh, for several chapters now, several passages out of several chapters in a row, pretty much since you know the, the whole of Luke 16, Jesus has been talking about money. He's been talking about um, you know, de- interacting with the Pharisees, and he you know, reiterates several times that the Pharisees love money, and that's why he you know, has... That's why there's a necessity for him to kind of address the topic of uh, money. Back in Luke 14, uh, Jesus is teaching, and he makes a reference to the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. It's in a, it's in a parable when he's talking about, uh, you know, these are the people that are going to be invited into God's kingdom. These are going to be the people that, you know, actually come first into God's kingdom, the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the, the sinners in the crowd kind of rightly picked up on what he was uh, communicating, and so they started to flock to Jesus, right? They're thinking, this is good news for us. Like, we, spiritually speaking, socially speaking, right, in terms of status, we are the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. So they start flocking to him. And then in Luke 15, uh, the Pharisees see this happening, and they start to murmur, and they start to grumble, and they're upset that Jesus is uh, welcoming sinners and eating with them. It's what prompts the parable of the prodigal son that we heard a few uh, weeks ago. And so then that starts this dialogue with Jesus and the Pharisees, uh, which culminates with Luke 16, uh, a lot of discussion about money. There's the parable of the dishonest manager where Jesus effectively says uh, that that uh, people should be generous with their money. Specifically, these Pharisees should be generous with their money. They should invest their money in eternity uh, rather than squandering it on things here in this, in this world. And then that kind of parlays into our text here today, the rich man and Lazarus. So I'm just going to read through it, and then we're going to spend some time uh, working through it. Luke 16, verses 19 to 31. It reads, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, who was covered in sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now the poor man was carried by, the poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes, and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm that's been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. 
And he said, no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. And he said, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, then neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning asking your blessing on this time as we hear from your word. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to us. We pray that you would be gracious to us. We pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to help us receive it. We pray that you would um, use your word to change us. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, verse 19, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. Jesus is, is uh, just with clause after clause after clause going out of his way to uh, stress and reiterate how wealthy, how exorbitantly, extravagantly, excessively wealthy this guy is. He's absurdly uh, wealthy. So purple Purple was uh, reserved for the, the, the uber wealthy in the, in the ancient world, pretty much royalty. And royalty and the really, really wealthy, in order to get purple dye, uh, you'd have to, it would, they, they kind of got it from a shellfish, a rare shellfish that they would harvest uh, at certain times. It would kind of come ashore. They would get it and crush it and get this purple uh, dye out of it. And because it was so scarce, it was super expensive. And the only people that would, you know, have purple, uh, you know, linen, where it was like a status symbol. People were kind of, because it was so expensive, they would get it to kind of flaunt how, uh, you know, much they had, how much money that they, that they had. So this guy wears purple linen, but it, it's, again, uh, they would be for like a special occasion. This guy wears purple linen every single day. So this would, you know, imagine, I don't know, like uh, people walking the red carpet and really, you know, ridiculous, you know, $10,000 outfits or whatever, million dollar diamond earrings or whatever. Now imagine someone wearing those things, but just every day, like when they go to the, go to the mall or just, you know, go, go run errands. This guy's ridiculously rich. He's excessively rich. It's almost, uh, you know, like inconceivably wealthy. He doesn't have a job, right? All he does is feast sumptuously every day. So he wakes up wearing really expensive clothes, parties all day, eats, drinks, has friends over, doesn't, uh, doesn't work, doesn't really do much uh, at, at all. Just, you know, constantly throwing himself into clothes, luxury, fashion, entertainment, food, drink, these kinds of things. That's this rich guy. Then in verse 20, we meet his counterpart, the kind of the, the opposite of him, which is Lazarus, interesting fact, is the only guy in any parable that we know his name. All the other guys are just like this guy, that guy, the Samaritan, this, this judge, that person. This guy, we, we learn his name. At this gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. So if the rich guy is excessively rich, ridiculously rich, extravagantly rich, uh, this guy is excessively, he's destitute, impoverished, sores all over his body, maybe from leprosy or some other sort of infectious skin disease, maybe just because he, you know, has no access to hygiene, he can't bathe, and so he just like kind of sits in filth all, all day long. Verse 21, he desires to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. So Lazarus is so poor that even the like the bags of garbage, right? The, the table scraps, the bags of garbage that are coming out of this rich man's, you know, kitchen look appetizing. And if he could just, you know, if he could eat what the rich man was throwing away on a daily basis, then it would, you know, it would exponentially increase his standard of living. 
Uh, Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Which sounds like, oh, that's so cute, right? Like, like a little, little puppy dog. Maybe that's nice. They didn't keep domesticated dogs in the, in the ancient world. So this, dogs were an unclean animal. They were, they were like, they were wild, dangerous dogs. They would kind of run wild in, in, in the streets or wherever. And so, uh, when this says dogs came and licked his sores, it's not meant to be, you know, cute or fun. It's meant to, you know, communicate danger and, and unclean, uncleanliness. I mean, in fact, it's meant to, um, almost uh, be like a play on words. Like here's this, here's this rich man who has more than he could ever want, more than he could ever need, more than he could ever consume in 20 lifetimes. He's throwing away, you know, all kinds of stuff. And here's this poor man that has nothing. And he's longing, he's desiring, he wishes he could have the, the leftovers, the scraps from this rich man's table, but he doesn't get any of that. He has nothing. And not only that, but then these dogs are actually feeding themselves uh, off of this guy's body. He has nothing, and even, what, even the nothing that he has is kind of being taken from him. These dogs are, are eating it. So the rich man is abs- has more than, more, you know, extravagantly rich. The poor man is uh, unconscionably, unthinkably poor and suffering and, uh, and just, just struggling. And then they both die. In, uh, in verse 22 and following, right, death doesn't discriminate, every, you know, rich, poor, sinner, saint, every single person is going to die. The poor man dies and is carried by the angels to Abraham's side. So Lazarus dies, he immediately finds himself in the company of Abraham, the forefather of the faith. The rich man also dies, and, and rich man also dies and was buried. So it doesn't mention that the poor man was buried, probably because he wasn't. He didn't have any friends, he didn't have any family, no one really knew about him, no one cared. Like, I mean, he probably... The only thing that the only time we see him interacting with anyone was verse twenty when they just kind of lay him at the gate of this uh, rich man. So maybe some guys are like, "Get this guy out of here! He's gross. We don't want him near us." Or put him in the path of maybe someone that we know has some extra money, and maybe they will uh, take care of him. They kind of dump him there, and that's it. That's all we see from from Lazarus interacting with anyone. He dies. His, his body probably just you know. It, goes unattended. The, the rich man, conversely, dies. He gets this extravagant burial, right? The, the whole town is, is there celebrating, talking about what a great guy he was, these kinds of things. So the rich man, rich man poor, poor man dies. He goes to the side of Abraham, the forefather of the faith. The rich man dies, extravagant, ornate wedding in this life, in this world, but then finds himself in Hades being in, being in torment. Which... Uh, is, is going to immediately kind of be uh, surprising. It's going to immediately be, be scandalous to the people that are listening to Jesus tell this, this parable, right? This guy's Jewish. The rich man is Jewish, and we can tell because uh, he refers to Abraham as his father in the next uh, couple of, of verses. So he's Jewish. He believes in God. He worships God. Uh, he's terribly wealthy, so he's probably very influential in the local synagogue, right? And, and then in the first century... Um, the assumption was you kind of equated material wealth, financial wealth, with righteousness, with morality, right? God, they would, they would say, well, if you're rich, it's because God is blessing you, and if God is blessing you, it's because God is pleased with you. God is happy with you. God approves of you. 
with a few, you know, exceptions like Caesar or the tax collectors or things like, with a few uh, exceptions of wicked rich people, for the most part, within the confines of the nation of Israel, if you're rich and if you're wealthy, God is blessing you. It's because you're a righteous, good, godly person. So, the, so Jesus' listeners, they're, they're hearing him, they're like, okay, this guy's Jewish, this guy's rich, he must be a good person, and then all of a sudden he finds himself in hell instead of in heaven. And Jesus tries to kind of explain, Jesus, Jesus tries to help people understand why that would happen and how this, this comes, comes about. Right, so, so again, uh, rich man is wealthy, he's obscenely wealthy, he's absurdly wealthy, you can't even imagine how much money that he has, and yet he seems utterly indifferent to the plight of poor people that are around him, people that are suffering around him. The Old Testament uh, over and over and over reiterates um, just our, the, the obligation, the responsibility of God's people to look after one another, and particularly, particularly to look after those who are vulnerable and those who are poor. Exodus 23, it says, when you're plowing your fields, uh, leave uh, some of it unplowed, right? Uh, don't go all the way to the end, like, but leave a little bit unplowed so that poor people can come and eat from what you leave behind in your fields. Leviticus 19, uh, don't go over your property a second time, right? Go over it and plow it once, but if stuff falls off of your machinery, or if you happen to miss an ear of corn there, or, you know, whatever, leave it there so that, so that the poor people can come behind you and, and take what you, what you left, and so there's all these kind of support structures and systems built in that God was saying, take care of poor people, right? I, I care about the poor. I want justice for the poor. I hate when poor people get taken advantage of. And God is constantly saying to his people, I want you to be like me in that. I want you to care about poor people. This rich man appears to be indifferent to the poor people that are in his proximity, by all accounts, he appears to love money more than he loves his neighbors. He appears to love money more than he loves God. And this love of money that this guy has is what lands him uh, in hell. So we see that uh, you know, the rich man died, was also buried, and in Hades being in... So, yeah, the word Hades, uh, being in torment, a lot, of, a lot of guys will look at this... Um, parable and kind of draw a lot of conclusions about uh, the afterlife... Well, in fact, a lot of this and several other passages, they'll, they'll take things like, um, you know, sometimes we use the word, sometimes we see the word paradise being used. Here we see the word, you know, going to Abraham's side, or some translations render it Abraham's bosom. Uh, and then in Revelation 20, 21, 22, uh, we see the new heavens and the new earth. So it's almost, so a lot of guys will, will say those are different things. Abraham's bosom, paradise, heaven. Uh, they'll look at the words like Sheol that we see in the Old Testament and, you know, distinguish that from Hades, which we see here, and distinguish that from hell or the lake of fire that we see in Revelation. And they get like a, a really big, really complex, really, you know, and they'll say, if you die in this point in redemptive history, you go to this place. And if you die in this point in redemptive history, you go to this place. And at this particular point in redemptive history, all these people are taken from this place to this place. And it's just very uh, complex. I personally uh, am not convinced that we have enough evidence to build that specific of like a end times, afterlife kind of chart and know exactly what happens and, and when. The broad strokes of this parable don't seem to be saying that Hades is different than hell or that heaven is different than paradise, is different than Abraham's side. The, the broad strokes of this parable seem to say there's heaven and there's hell. 
and the rich guy goes to hell, and the poor guy goes to heaven, which in and of itself is significant. In and of itself is a, a stark kind of reality for us to, to consider. So, rich guy, everyone assumes he's going to heaven, he ends up in hell. He looks up, he sees this guy that he's ignored, this guy that he's blown off his entire life, and he sees that that guy is in heaven, and he can't believe what happened, right? I was good, I was righteous, I was rich, right? Everyone, I just assumed that God was pleased with me, and now, and now here I am uh, in hell. And then what's interesting is, uh, it appears that his heart still hasn't changed, he still doesn't he still even sees Lazarus, even though Lazarus is in heaven and he's in hell, he still sees Lazarus as his servant, right? He says, Abraham, um, let's, let's go to the next slide in verse 24. It says, Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. So I'm in hell, he's in heaven, but he's still in some weird way in my brain is, is beneath me. He's subhuman, he's a servant, he's a slave. Tell him to do my bidding and, and tell him to bring me something, which represents an extreme reversal, right? In life, Lazarus has nothing. He's hungry, he's thirsty, he's suffering, he's in pain. All he wants is just the scraps from the rich man's table. Now, in heaven and hell, respectively, Lazarus has everything that he could ever want. Food, drink, overflowing, spilling onto the ground, and the rich man has nothing. And the rich man now wants the, he doesn't want, he doesn't say, tell, tell Lazarus to bring me a drink. He just says, I'll take the scraps. I'll just take the drops that, that you know, that Lazarus doesn't have any use for anymore. So it's a complete uh, reversal of situation, complete reversal of the, the paradigm. Abraham responds, child, remember that in your lifetime, you received good things and Lazarus received bad things. Now he's comforted and you are in anguish, right? Translation, you loved your money more than you loved your neighbor, you loved your money more than you loved God, and you had plenty of money, and I hope you enjoyed it. Because that was like your money and all the stuff that you enjoyed in your, your life in this world, that was as close to heaven as you're ever going to get. And now for the rest of eternity, you have hell to experience, right? If you don't, if you don't know Christ, then this life is, is essentially heaven for you. This life is as close to heaven as you get, and after that is hell. If you do know Jesus, then this life is as close to hell as you'll ever get. This life is hell, as it were, and you persevere through it, and then you get to enjoy life with God under the rule of God in heaven for all of eternity. And besides this, between us and you, there's a great chasm that's been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able. So Abraham says, I'm sorry, uh, what's done is done, right? There's no, no take-backs, no mulligans, right? There's heaven, there's hell, and they, they last forever, right? Hebrews 9 says it's appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So your, your fate is set, it's determined, and it can't be changed. And so then his mind immediately goes to his brothers. Verse 27, Then I beg you, Father, send him to my brother's house. For I have five brothers, so that they may, he may warn them, lest they come to this place of torment. So, so suffering in hell is giving this rich man a new perspective on, on ev- he's like pro-evangelism now. He's like, he's like a big proponent of evangelism. He wants his brothers to avoid the same uh, you know, fate that he has gotten. Abraham responds, they have Moses, they have the prophets. Let them hear them, right? Translation, 
uh, your brothers don't need someone to come and tell them to repent. They already have all of the evidence and all of the reason that they need to repent. They have, a, they have a Bible. They can read in their Bible about how God has saved His people, about how God has made a way for them to be reconciled to Him. Right? They, they can read in their Bible about how if they turn from their sin and trust in God's mercy, then He will... They already have a sign. They already have a spectacular sign, and it's called the, the Bible that they have in their possession. Verse 30, no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, then they will repent, right? They need something over and above the word of God. They need something over and above the law and the prophets, right? They need something special. They need something sensational. They need something spectacular, right? Dreams, visions, like they need an apparition. They need someone to appear to them and, and like, you know, spell out, in the sky, you know, repent of your sin, or they need to, whatever, right? They need some sort of special sign. Verse 31, he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, then neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Abraham says, don't, uh, don't overestimate your brother. Don't overestimate like the spiritual sensitivity and the capacity for repentance that your brothers have. Don't, don't uh, fool yourself into thinking that if they saw some spectacular, miraculous, sensational sign, then all of a sudden, the, like, as if they were like waiting, ready and willing to repent, uh, just, and they just needed some sort of sign to kind of help them and propel them into it. Abraham says the reality is that uh, they have their Bible, they have access to it, they've read it, they've heard it, and they have not responded by repenting. So why would they respond to a spectacular sign by repenting? Which, of course, is, uh, you know, which, of course, is a rebuke against the Pharisees that are in the audience here. Because Jesus says in John 5, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And, but yet it's the scriptures that bear witness about me, and yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus says the same thing about the Pharisees that he says about this, about this rich man's brothers. You have access to the word of God, but you've rejected the person that the word of God is pointing to, right? Uh, you have rejected the word of God, and so now even if someone comes back to life, which, spoiler alert, Jesus comes back to life, uh, even if someone comes back to life and you see him and you have access to this person, you still will not repent. And that is the, that's the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. This like confounding, or, like surprising kind of twist, turn of circumstances where the rich man goes to hell, the poor man goes to heaven, and then Jesus, or, and then Abraham converses with this uh, rich man from the one place to the other. So a few points of application that I wanted to tease out, uh, you know, in, in response to this, to this text. Just a few kind of um, observations or theological points that we can kind of draw from this. The first is um, heaven and hell are real. Like, they're real places that exist. And they, we really are going to go to one place or the, the other, right? That much is clear from this text, right? Again, so we probably can't draw all kinds of details about, like, all of this different afterlife, you know, get in the weeds with that kind of stuff. But what we can say for sure is that there's heaven and it's real. There's hell and it's real. If you turn from your sin, if you trust in God, if you trust in Christ, you will go to heaven and be with Jesus when you die. You'll experience his glorious presence. You'll be 
comforted. Jesus says that He Himself will wipe every tear from the eyes of His people. We will reign with Christ. Life will be as it was meant to be when God created us. Heaven is real and hell is real. So if you persist in rebellion and rejection of God, right, then, then we'll be separated from God's loving presence when we die. You don't, you know, you don't get reincarnated and come back as a turkey sandwich or something. You don't get annihilated and just stop existing forever. You don't uh, go to purgatory and, and reside there for as long as it takes until you can be ready for heaven. If you die and you haven't trusted Christ, you haven't been reconciled to God, then you go to hell and you suffer under the wrath of God forever. And it is, it is terrible. So, so one huge kind of theological truth this passage points out is that heaven is real, hell is real. If you want to go to heaven and not hell, trust in the person of Christ. Another is this. How you live your life here in this world will directly affect how you experience eternity. Right? The determining factor of whether you experience eternity in glory in heaven with Jesus or whether you suffer forever in hell apart from Jesus is how you respond to Jesus in this life. Will you reject him? Will you continue to rebel against him? Will you remain at enmity with him? Or will you surrender to him and trust him and come to him in repentance and faith? Will you, will you keep trying to be your own king, living in rebellion against Jesus, the true king? Or will you surrender to the kingship and the lordship of Jesus? According to this parable, there's, there's one big key indicator to help you know where you stand, right? To help, to help reveal whether or not you have surrendered to Jesus or whether you're rejecting Jesus. And that is, do you love Jesus? And specifically, do you love him more than anything else? Do you love him more than, than money? This rich man loved money more than he loved God, and he loved money more than he loved his neighbor, Right? He loved the things that money can buy for him. He loves power and, and comfort and status, right? He loves the approval of the people uh, around him. And this parable tells us if you love these things more than you love God, right? If you love these things more than you love your neighbor, then that is reason to believe, that's reason to conclude that Jesus might not have actually changed your heart. That's reason to conclude that Jesus, that you might not have actually come to Jesus in the first place. You might not have really repented of your sin and trusted in him. So this parable kind of exhorts us to look at our life and determine whether we love God and whether we love our neighbor more than we love ourselves and more than we love money. So, heaven is real, hell is real. How we live our life in this world affects, it actually determines whether we're going to go to heaven or hell. Here's another uh, theological truth that we can derive from this passage, which is that wealth does not guarantee salvation, right? Um, that seems to be the assumption of this rich guy. I'm rich, I'm wealthy, God must love me. I'm a, that, that certainly was the assumption of Jesus' uh, listeners, the Pharisees, and this parable confronts it, right? Just because you're rich doesn't mean that God is pleased with you. It doesn't mean that God's affirming how you live your life. It's not a guarantee that you're in right standing with God. Your eternity is not necessarily secure just because you have money. Being rich is not necessarily uh, a, an indicator that God is blessing you and that he's pleased with you. In fact, according to a lot of the New Testament, being wealthy is 
more of a hazard. It's more of a danger than it is uh, a, a, a security device, right? According to 1 Timothy 6, being rich makes you likely to fall into temptation, into harmful desires and snares. It very well might plunge you into ruin and destruction. Jesus says that it's harder for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's, it's not easier, it's harder, he, he says, so, so being rich, being wealthy, having material wealth does not necessarily guarantee us salvation. But it's also worth noting that um, we don't want to over, we don't want to misinterpret this passage by saying, okay, well then all rich people go to hell and all poor people go to heaven. Because that's certainly uh, not true, right? There's nothing inherently righteous about being poor. There's nothing inherently wicked about being rich. The Bible doesn't say that it's sinful to be rich. It says that it's sinful to lust after riches and to desire it more than you desire anything else, right? The Bible doesn't say there's anything particularly godly or righteous about being poor. It says that it's righteous and godly to be content and glad in God even in the midst of uh, poverty. So this passage isn't saying that just because you're rich, uh, it doesn't mean that you're going to heaven. Um, but it does, it does say that, uh, it, it does, it does say that I'm sorry, it doesn't say just because you're rich, you definitely are going to hell, but it does say just because you're rich, you should not assume that you're going to heaven. Vice versa, right? Just because you're poor doesn't mean you're definitely going to heaven, but being poor does not render you, you know, outside of the reach of God's grace. God is able to save poor people. God is able to, they can still partake, poor people can still partake in the grace of God through repentance and faith. So, heaven is real, hell is real. How we live in this life uh, determines our, our eternity. Wealth does not necessarily guarantee us salvation. There are some things that we can actually uh, learn and derive about hell from this passage. There's a lot of teachers that try to get God off the hook for the doctrine of hell. It makes them uncomfortable. It makes people uh, uncomfortable. And so there's all kinds of doctrines about hell that, that theologians will try to, uh, you know, hold to or teach to kind of get God off the, off the hook. So, uh, you know, some will say hell, hell is not God's active wrath being poured out on sinners. Rather, hell is just the passive, like God withdrawing his presence from a place and then people are, are in it. So God is not necessarily punishing sinners. God's just not there. So hell is dark and cold and, and lonely. Or some will say hell is, hell is bad, but it's not forever. So at some point, maybe everyone in hell comes to heaven, or at some point, everyone in hell uh, gets, you know, they, they stop existing entirely. Some people say hell is just a, it's not even a place, it's a state of mind. Hell is, right, hell is like a, a you know, poverty, poverty and oppression and things like that in this world are like, uh, is that's what hell is. Or some people say that hell, uh, that uh, I think that the actual language from one theologian is that the gates of hell are locked from the inside instead of from the outside. So the idea is that uh, people in hell, like hell might not be good, but the people that are in hell, are they want to be there. They, they've chosen to be there because they don't want to be with God. They would rather be in hell than be in the presence of God because they hate God and they are standing against God. But again, this text seems to push back against all of those, like, 
ways to nuance around the doctrine of hell because uh, this rich man certainly does not want to be where he is. He's, he's being tormented. There's flames. There's pain. There's wrath. There's like real suffering that is taking place. He wants relief from it. He doesn't want to, he doesn't want to be, he might not want to be in heaven where God and Jesus are, but he certainly doesn't want to be in hell where God's wrath is. So heaven is real. Hell is real, right? Um, you know, how we live in this life will affect how we experience eternity. Wealth does not guarantee salvation. This text also teaches about the, uh, about the sufficiency of God's word, right? Rich guy says, send someone to my brothers. Send someone to go tell them so that they will repent. And Abraham responds by saying, they already have everything that they need in order to repent. They have the word of, of God. Have you ever, you ever spoken with someone and had them say, you know, I, I'd love to believe in God. I just don't see enough evidence for it. If I saw some sort of, you know, if I saw something that was undeniable, whether it was a miracle or a vision or something like that, then I might uh, respond by uh, trusting God. But as it stands right now, I just don't see enough evidence, right? Um, you know, Jesus is saying the existence of a Bible where, where, where God himself has sovereignly spoken, where God has inspired people to write the words of, of God, put them into, onto pen and paper, where God has then sovereignly uh, preserved those words over centuries, right? These, these infallible, inerrant words of God that he inspired to be written and he sovereignly preserved. And then he saw to it that those words would be translated into a language where you could read it and understand it. And then God sovereignly saw to it that when you read it, your heart is opened. The eyes of your heart are opened. Your, your, your mind is illuminated so that you can see and behold who God is and experience him, right? He said that, that's as spectacular and as sensational uh, of, of revelation that anyone would ever, would ever need, right? The eternal, infinite, sovereign creator of the world speaking and revealing himself to his people so that we can hear from him directly. Right? He says if you insist that you need more than that, that's, that's absurdity, right? The, the word of God in and of itself is sufficient to point people to who God is and to call them to repentance. And even if that's not enough, so us living here in 2020, right? So he's, uh, Abraham says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they, will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So if you insist that you need more than the word of God that you have access to, the reality is someone did come back from the dead. Right? If you're saying, uh, I'll only repent if someone comes back from the dead and tells me to repent, Jesus came back from the dead. And Jesus is telling you to repent. Jesus lived as a sacrificial lamb who died in your, your place. He satisfied the wrath of God. Right? He took the, the punishment that you would have experienced in hell and he experienced it himself on the cross. Jesus paid your penalty so that you could be saved and then he rose from the dead so that you could hear him and see him and experience him. Right? Right, so God's word is, uh, you know, this guy might be thinking, God's word is great, but I need someone to rise from the dead to tell me to repent. And Jesus did rise from the dead. Jesus did tell us to repent. 
And now, having risen from the dead, Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father. He's interceding for his people for all of eternity. He's assuring us that we will never be cast out of the presence of his Father because of who he is and what he has done for us. Jesus has risen from the dead, and Jesus has called us to new life in Christ. And that is what we remember when we celebrate communion. Right? We remember that Jesus died for us, that his body was broken, that his blood was poured out. We also remember that Jesus was raised from the dead for us, and that he is interceding for us. When we take communion, we can you know, eat and drink uh, knowing that we are remembering uh, Christ's already finished sacrifice, but also knowing that we are thinking about and praying to and interacting with a God, uh, a Savior who is alive right now today, and who is actively ensuring that our salvation is forever sure and forever secure. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you're a Christian, right, member of a church, member of this church, member of another church, if if you're a Christian uh, who's trusted in Christ, then we would invite you to take communion with us. Right? During the next song, uh, you're going to have a chance to come forward. There's two stations up here. There's like sanitary communion elements. They're in like individually sealed uh, you know, packages. So just practice social distancing, but come up, grab a thing of communion, uh, maybe make a little flow where you kind of come up and then you know, go back. Um, and yeah, just take a minute while we're singing. Take a minute to, to pray. Take a minute to confess your sin to God. Take a minute to you know, remember the grace of God that he extends to you. And then eat the bread and drink the juice. If you're not a Christian, we would ask you to not take communion because the Bible teaches against that. Instead, uh, instead of inviting you to take communion, we would invite you to take Christ and to trust in Jesus and to take him as your Savior uh, so that you can take communion with us next time when we take it uh, in next, next month. <clears throat> Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we... Thank you, Lord, that your salvation is not only for the rich and the powerful. It's not only for the elite. We thank you that your salvation is open to anyone and to everyone. Your salvation is available for the worst of sinners. Lord, we pray that you would save us from uh, the love of money. We pray that you would help us to see Christ as our uh, Savior and to trust in him. And as we do, we pray that you would help us to love God more than we love our neighbors. We pray that you would help us to, I'm sorry, to love God more than we love money, to love our neighbors more than we love money. We pray that you would help us to trust in the sufficiency of your word. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.